Welcome to the bonus material of How in God's Name Should I Vote? I'm Andrew Palmer, and in the midst of pulling together the content for the podcast, I got to speak with some really inspiring people. And today we speak with Jim Wallace, American author, public theologian, and justice advocate. Jim is the author of two books that have shifted the way I view political engagement really quite profoundly. The first is God's Politics, Why the Right Has It Wrong and the Left Doesn't Get It, and Uncommon Good, How the Gospel Brings Hope to a World Divided, where he calls consistently to Christians of all persuasions in the West to put aside a reductionist theology that separates and elevates the spiritual and sacred from the material and secular to instead see persons, the planet, and indeed the universe as worthy of honour, love, and redemption. Jim Wallace is not afraid to mix it with global heavyweights. It's fair to say he's off the Christmas card list of several world leaders. And yet there is also a gentle fatherly side to Jim that shines through in his love for those that in the dog-eat-dog world of free market economy have too often ended up as the entree. One of Jim's key lines is, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. And I'm going to corrupt it. Don't go left, don't go right, go get a cup of coffee and enjoy getting to know Jim Wallace. Jim joins us on the phone now from the United States. Thanks for your time today, Jim. I always like to be uh, back in Australia. <laughs> We're heading into a federal election and there's a degree of cynicism huh? in the Australian community around character and message of our political leaders. Can our vote really make a difference? Well, uh, political cynicism is, uh, is a global phenomenon, sadly. And it's because our political leaders often haven't chosen solutions over blaming. <laughs> they all like to blame each other for the problem, but don't take responsibility for solving the problem too often. We become very politicized ideologically. And for example, in this country, there's a famous religious right that that um, is very supportive of Donald Trump. And yet um, a number of us who are often lifted up as an alternative voice wouldn't want to be called religious left. I say, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. <laughs> and if we're Christians, we have to go deeper into what Jesus said and meant and taught. So followers of Jesus, I think, uh, if we're faithful to what he says, will often have be challenging both sides of the political spectrum. But we're always talking about how something impacts the poor, the marginal, the vulnerable. My conversion text was Matthew 25, and it was, I call it the it, it was me text. Jesus says, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was a stranger. Stranger means immigrant, refugees, that's what the word means. I was sick and in prison, and the way you treat them is the way you treat me. So you apply that to politics, and uh, you end up challenging a lot of powerful, wealthy political leaders. You mentioned don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. Mm -hmm. and the idea that we could actually use our voice and our vote for others. The question that we have in Australia where we don't get a choice on whether we vote or not, it is compulsory. Mm -hmm. right. Do you think, therefore, we ought to be swinging voters? Well, I think uh, people of faith ought to be um, never a party, never an ideological party, nor should they be a chaplain. 
to the right or to the left, but they should be raising the issues that uh, that our biblical faith raises up. For example, there are 2,000 verses in the Bible on the poor, about the poor. Poor and the oppressed, the marginal, the hungry, 2,000 verses. And so um, the God of the Bible, it clearly says, evaluates even nation's leaders by how they treat the poorest and most vulnerable. So it's never um, your gross national product, your military strength, or how your popular culture is the envy of the world. It's how are the poor and vulnerable doing under your regime? So that's a question that I've pressed both Republicans and Democrats on. Uh, Being in the White House and sometimes being arrested outside the White House. <laughs> um, so I think those are the questions that we have to raise. And, uh, you know, Jesus prompted the question from a lawyer once who wanted to know how to inherit, inherit eternal life. And he said, love your God with your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer then said something that is typical of, actually, the lawyer in the text, people know, was a Washington lawyer because I know that tone of voice. And he said, well, who is my neighbor? Not meaning to expand that notion of neighbor, but to constrict it, to restrict it. And Jesus tells a story, as many of your listeners know, about the Good Samaritan, who most Judeans of Jesus' time didn't think any Samaritans were good. They were uh, mixed race. They were the other. And yet he... He lifts up one of them as the example of what it means to love your neighbor. And then he loves, he takes care of this uh, this man who was robbed and beaten and was lying in the ground half dead and who was different than him. So really what Jesus is saying there is your neighbor is not somebody who's just like you. Your neighbor is probably outside your path, is someone who's different than you. That's who your neighbor is. And how are we loving them? And it's a big question in my country when we have a president who is demonizing and despising and uh, and acting against the neighbor if they're an immigrant or a refugee. And the problem with that isn't just political. The problem with that is theological. Mm. Jesus is how you treat the neighbor is how you treat me, how you treat the other, and the stranger in particular. And so... When religious leaders support this president, they need to be held accountable to what Jesus said about loving your neighbor as yourself, and how you treat the stranger is how you treat me. So I like to bring Jesus' questions and and um, and his his teachings in new American politics, but that often gets us in trouble. <laughs> the love of neighbor is profoundly connected to the idea mm-hmm. of the common good, an area that you've spoken right. about and written on extensively. Mm-hmm. Can you explain how the mm-hmm. agenda of Jesus relates to the common good? Great question. We're in a not only a cynical time over here, like you're experiencing there too, but a very polarized time. People are not uh, disagreeing just with each other, demonizing each other and not listening to each other. And particularly, they become very tribal in their politics. And so the common good is when we, we uh, listen 
for not leadership that is winning and losing, but leadership that is really uh, trying to ask what's best for all of us. What are our best values? Don't we really um, want the same kind of things for our children, whether we're black, white, Asian American, or Latino? And that kind of conversation uh, that bonds us together uh, is dividing us because we're not talking to each other and often don't know each other. In this country, 75% of white people don't have a single relationship with a person or family of color in their social circles. So uh, when I see moms bonding over talking about the future, their hopes and fears for their children, that's not happening across racial lines. If it did, it would change us. And so churches in particular, the body of Christ globally is the most diverse human community on the planet body of Christ is the most diverse human community on the planet. And so when we become conformed to the culture and become just tribal, when the phrase white Christian, when the operative word is not Christian, but white, we have a problem. And so how do we get past our tribal identities and understand ourselves as God uh, understands us? All of us made in the image of God. Every one of us love our neighbors, no exceptions to that. So that's that's critical to the common good. Here's a critical teaching of Jesus that is essential to the common good if we're going to listen to each other, uh, listen to each other's stories, know what parents who are different than us are thinking about their children, their future, and really saying uh, what is the best thing for all of us, not just for our tribe. Evangelicals in Australia, I don't think struggle with the issues of race that perhaps manifest in the United States, but there's certainly difficulty around the religious divide, most especially the Muslim divide in Australia, the Christian-Muslim mm-hmm. divide. Do you have any advice as to how people might practically engage that conversation? Well, you mentioned that I was uh, advisor and friend to Barack Obama. It's also true of George Bush, who was a Republican, and he, I think, was exemplary after 9-11 on reaching out to the Muslim community uh, as a Republican. He just said, uh, you know, Muslims are are not our enemy. Islam is intended to be a religion of peace, and when it's violated by fundamentalists uh, in Islam, but also in Judaism or in Christianity, it becomes a religion of power and one of violence. And he wanted to make sure that Muslims knew they were welcome in America. He wouldn't have done a Muslim ban. George Bush wouldn't have liked President Trump has. He wouldn't have made them fear for their very uh, belonging in this country and for their treatment of their kids. Uh, So both Republicans and Democrats, I think, have reached out as Christians or or Jews or, uh, or people of no faith at all to make sure our Muslim citizens are respected and protected and treated well. And um, so uh, I, I find that, um, you know, when we come together around issues like how the poor are treated, how immigrants are treated, how we resolve conflicts, how we deal with this ecological crisis, I'm not sure what's happening 
there, but that's becoming a nonpartisan, bipartisan issue, particularly among a younger generation who believes that protecting and being stewards of God's creation means to care about climate change and climate justice. So where there are moral issues, not just political ones, that can bring us together across our political boundaries, those are the places where we tend to try and work. You speak very clearly there around what I would call the horizontal axis of human beings relating to one another and relating to the planet that God has made. There's also Mm -hmm. a vertical axis with our relationship to God, and those two axes seem to be mutually exclusive in much Christian thought. Can you inform us how you bring consensus to those two particular positions? Well, let me quote an evangelical who uh, spoke to this. Uh, His name was Billy Graham. I remember up at Harvard once, the last time he was at Harvard, he was speaking. And I was teaching there that night, so I came to, brought my class to his lecture and then spent some time with Billy beforehand because we were friends. And after his lovely talk, there was a student, an evangelical, who stood up and and, uh, said, Billy, Reverend Graham, don't you think that all the non-Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, aren't they all going to hell? And Billy said, well, you know, God will judge all of us in God's grace and mercy, but justice, and God will judge all of us. But I'm thankful that isn't my job, and God hasn't given me that job to do. And the student was was discouraged uh, as an evangelical triumphalist. He said, well, what do you think God's going to do? And Billy said, you know, God doesn't consult with me on those kinds of questions. And so, uh, uh, and then he said, uh, you would relate to this being in uh, in Asia. He said, well, at least, at least the Jews are monotheists like we are. What about the Buddhists? They aren't monotheists. And Billy said, well, you know, I'm now preaching in Buddhist countries. I've now preached. And frankly, I've met Buddhists who are more Christ-like than many Christians I know in America. <laughs> so here's Billy Graham, who's the leading evangelist in the world who preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, which I try and do as well. But uh, God will make those judgments and not ourselves. And I, we just need, need preaching the gospel. And when Jesus, when Jesus announced his mission at Nazareth, uh, his first speech, his opening gig, if you will, what I call his Nazareth manifesto, from where we get the word evangelical, he said, quoting Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news, and the word there, good news, in Greek is evangel, good news to the poor. And so that means if our gospel, whatever else it does, is not good news to the poor, it's simply not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hmm. And so the more we're coming together around the world to want to understand how the gospel and we we must be good news to the poor and the marginal and the vulnerable. That's bringing us together around the world, evangelical, Pentecostal, Catholic. Uh, the church of the future is no longer the church whose epicenter is America or Europe, but is the global south. Uh, and that's what's bringing us together around being followers of Jesus.
say that people of faith should never worship at the idol of politics. What do you mean by that? And do you see that playing out in both the conservative and progressive Christian circles? Well, I think uh, our politics shouldn't define our faith. That's what often happens. And I think our our theology needs to define our politics. Our, our faith should be brought into our politics and not the other way around. And so, yes, I think the religious right in this country, for example, is really a shameless example of ideology and politics shaping, distorting, and defining faith. Um, and yet... Um, it continues to happen, where it's very funny how how the perception probably in Australia, around the world, is that in America, Republicans control religion, and except for African Americans, most Democrats don't, don't want to talk about faith. And that's been the caricature for a long time. And indeed, there's some truth in that. But if you listen to the religious right, which you can hear all day long, on their radio and TV shows, you never learn a thing about Jesus, ever. And in fact, I think the religious right and the secular left have one thing in common. They want Americans and the world to think that all religion, all Christianity, is right-wing. And it's not. But I don't want to be a religious left mimicking the religious right. And I think we have to be followers of Jesus, who allow what Jesus said and did and taught to uh, shape our politics. And that may make us able to challenge all sides about what Jesus thought was important. Why do you think the most strident voices within the Christian world tend to be narrow and they're often the loudest? Is it driven particularly by fear? Well, we sometimes forget our history. <laughs> in this country, uh, the leaders of the abolitionist movement, those who want to abolish slavery, were Christian. Um, the leaders of the civil rights movement, my mentor, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., was, was a Baptist preacher. And um, in England, you had, um, you know, you had uh, Wesleyan uh, converts leading the battle against slavery uh, in the UK. So we have a long history of Christians standing up and speaking the words of Jesus. And I think today it's probably caused by two things. One is the people on the right have really strategized to, it's kind of a political takeover of religion <laughs> by political operatives, not, not a theological discussion, but a political takeover of uh, parts of the white evangelical world. But also the media in this country is is pretty secular. That's a true critique and is um, actually pretty ignorant, illiterate about faith. <laughs> and uh, and the, the ones that are most secular, meaning what I call the secular fundamentalists, I fought my whole life against religious fundamentalists who to substitute the gospel for, for power. Uh, but now there are secular fundamentalists who are against religion per se. So as I said, the religious right and the secular left want everyone to think that religion is, is narrow and is closed and is all right-wing, and it's not. Mm. It's not.
Let's consider the American example for a moment. And Australians uh-huh. look at the US political system with a deal of disbelief. Perhaps Americans do disbelief. too. Disbelief? My, really? <laughs> Donald <laughs> so Trump. So do we. Yeah, every exactly. Day. <laughs> Donald Trump secured a large part of the evangelical vote in the States through the sanctity <clears throat> of life debate. Can you describe how that played out in the US? Well, Donald Trump was a bit of an accidental president, meaning that the candidate, Hillary Clinton, was, I think, a very weak candidate. It was in a very tough spot. First woman who ever ran. Uh, she had issues about her husband to deal with, which are uneasy. She had this email stupidity that she got caught in. And maybe the Russians helped her, too. helped him, too. So you never know. But she actually won the popular vote by three million votes. But our electoral system does have a bias toward rural voters and, you know, white rural voters, the way the system is set up. So in many ways, Donald Trump, he's not the cause of all our problems. He's the consequence. He sort of he reveals what America has has become. He's a, you know, a, a reality show television host with all those kinds of values. I don't agree with the Democrats on abortion. I think we ought to, in fact, work hard on all sides of this to reduce abortion, uh, which is always a very tragic and desperate thing that people will sometimes get women who are vulnerable get trapped into. But Republicans, they're pro-birth, but they're not really pro-life. You've got to be concerned about kids after they're born, kids of color, to cut health care and nutrition and education opportunity for kids of color is not pro-life. That's just pro-birth for mostly white kids. So that's a hypocrisy on all sides. Mm. And Christians should speak to that. And my conversion text, again, is Matthew 25. And you've got two vulnerable kinds of people, women who are often, um, most women who get abortions here are, are low income. And they're alone. They're unmarried. They're alone. That means you're vulnerable. So the woman is vulnerable, and that vulnerable child, any of us who are parents, know how we learn how vulnerable the children uh, in our uh, uh, the wombs of our family are. So instead of looking at how we treat vulnerable people, women and children, uh, we take sides and we blame the other side, and abortion has become a politicized issue. And what I would call a consistent ethic of life, we care about the ethic of life, abortion, but also capital punishment and nuclear weapons and poverty. That's a consistent ethic of life. It's more biblical than just politicizing an issue like the right has done here. And the left has done, too. So when politics wraps around our faith and defines our faith, we're in trouble. But our faith has clear political implications when we're trying to protect people who are in trouble, who are in danger, who who are vulnerable. That's what we should do. And the best contribution for the Christian, for the common good, is to defend the people that everyone else tends to forget about. I think you've, you've really nailed the nub of the problem for evangelical Christians around the world, is that partisan politics provides a cluster of policies that some of which they'll agree with, some of which they won't agree with, and there seems to be no good choice to make. 
where our consciences are salved and the issues of the kingdom of God, recognising that we live in a secular pluralist democracy, so the government is not going to govern according to our, our particular modes, but there seems to be no good choice one way or the other. There are good choices to always make for those who are vulnerable, for those who are poor, uh, for those who are immigrants and refugees, for those who are in refugee camps around the world, for those whose lives are in danger because of climate change, and they've contributed least to it. They're often poor, marginal people of color around the world who will be the ones to suffer the most when the impact of climate change gets worse and worse. So I want to choose on behalf of the people that God has chosen, that God tells me to stand with in solidarity uh, and to work with and lead with and protect. Politics is a matter of policy and compromise, and, and so we can press for more social justice, more protection, more, more fairness, um, inequality around the world growing every single day. That's a biblical issue. Mm. The current government in Australia's re-election platform is based around a sound economy, and the economic agenda is dominating this particular campaign. How does the gospel impact economic priorities at a political level, and should a strong economy be a high priority? Well, the question is, what is a sound economy? (laughs) What is uh, a strong economy? Uh, and if that is just how well the markets are doing or whether the richer are getting richer and richer, the economy is increasingly serving the needs of the 10%, top 10%, or the top 1%, or in this country, the top 0.1%. The numbers may look strong, but from a biblical point of view, that isn't a sound or a strong economy. And even economically, economic inequality is so great now, it will undermine our economics and our politics. And so how do we make sure that in fact there is opportunity that all people really do have educationally, economically, how do we make sure that's true? If the markets have no no ethics, they'll end up uh, even destroying themselves in the end, mm. but a lot of vulnerable people first. So those are biblical, and I talk to business leaders about this all the time. This isn't some left-wing conspiracy. I talk to business leaders who are people of faith who want their measure not to be just shareholder profits or quarterly profits and losses, but want there to be stakeholders that include their workers and consumers and the environment itself. The ethical implication of economy leads us directly in this instance in Australia to issues of environment and climate change. That's another deeply politicised issue in Australia, uh, including the the push to open uh, the largest open coal mine in Australia in Queensland, the Adani coal mine. It's a deeply politicised issue and it seems to be running along demographic lines where the vast majority of younger voters are uh, more inclined to be conservative around issues of the environment, 
whereas older voters seem to be more pragmatic around the economics of it. It's obviously an important issue to thinking Christians. Can you speak into how Christians might engage the environment? Well, we have a, we have a whole um, campaign at Sojourners called Environmental Justice or Climate Justice, which is that as the outcome, the results of climate change continue, they will first most impact the most vulnerable and people of color. If you put a map on the wall of the U.S. and all of the places where low-income people live, just put that map on the wall, low-income people of color live, then put another map on top of it of where all the toxic waste dumps are, where all the worst environmental hazards are, it's the same map. It's an identical map. So why are we doing that? Why are we making the poor uh, most uh, subject to asthma, to uh, environmentally caused diseases? Um, Because we don't think they're as important as uh, other people. This is an image of God question. In the first chapter of Genesis 126, it says, uh, let us make them, uh, let, let us make them human beings in, the, in our image and likeness, our image and likeness. And John 1 says Christ was there at the creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing was made without Him. That means our image. Christ was present at that, and it says, and then let let them have dominion, in the better word, their stewardship, over the earth, all the creeping things, the plants, all the rest. That's clear. That's our purpose. That's God's purpose for us right there in Genesis chapter 1. But some people, white people, decided to have dominion over other people, people of color. So in our country, we decided we couldn't do to indigenous people or kidnapped Africans, what we were doing in terms of stealing their land and their lives, if they were made in the image of God. So we'll just say that they weren't made in the image of God. So three-fifths slaves were called three-fifths of a person in our Constitution. So we denied the image of God. It, it, we assaulted the image of God. We undermined Genesis one twenty-six at the beginning of this country, which is why I call it our original sin, America's original sin. And sins have to be repented of, which doesn't mean feeling guilty and sorry. It means turning things around. The word repentance in Christianity, Islam, Judaism, means you're going in the wrong direction, turn and walk the other way. So our treatment of God's creation is really sinful. And and it's based on the racial domination that we did at the beginning of our country in this country. Uh, and the Christians were responsible for that because they said, "Let's because we can't treat them like people. Let's say they're really, they really are. They're less than human." And so this is an issue of stewardship. It's our obedience to God, and that's why the environment or uh, and climate change are becoming nonpartisan issues for many. Certainly generational. I've got two teenage boys. And for them, this is their future and the future of their kids. So how do we, in fact, be faithful? This is a biblical issue, not just a political one. Then how do we find the solutions? How do we 
deal with increasing renewable energy? How do we uh, take away the, the dominance of fossil fuels because of the dominance of fossil fuel companies on politicians who they have literally bought, uh, bought and sold politicians are, are causing climate change. So we've learned now, if we pay attention, all young people know that the future is renewable energy, safe, clean, and not fossil fuels. So this isn't just a scientific issue or political issue. This is how to be stewards of God's creation. So I think a new generation of young Christians, including young young evangelicals, are going to say, no longer is this acceptable to us. We're going to change this. And they're doing it not because they're they're labor or conservative. They're doing it because they're, they're Christians. jump back into the idea of of having a voice both inside and outside from a christian perspective and a gospel Mm -hmm. perspective to me that's Mm -hmm. a fascinating idea of how we might engage the powers are there lines that we cannot cross on both the inside and the outside you know i've been thinking a lot about in this book i'm just finished about salt and light you know after the in the sermon on the mountain the attitudes jesus says you know Blessed are the poor, blessed are the are the merciful, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who seek justice, peacemakers. But then he says, you're salt and light. So think about salt and light. Um, salt preserves, um, holds things together. There are, there are communal values uh, that are cr- critical for any society uh, to be sustained. And it's often... At its best, conservatism wants that. It wants sustainable values and common values and fidelity and loyalty and um, uh, honesty and truth-telling and uh, compassion, Uh, and it's to preserve. And so I think part of our role in the world is to preserve, preserve the best and what we need in our lives, our families, our societies. But then light, light shines itself on darkness. It shines, exposes things, reveals things, things that are wrong, things that we should no longer accept. Christians decided that slavery was no longer acceptable, and they decided that after a Wesleyan revival. They came to Christ, and they turned against slavery. Uh, It was almost part of the altar call in uh, those revival meetings that I've been able to preach at John Wesley's pulpit in central London, and to be in a pulpit that has changed the world was a very humbling and very um, um, deeply moving thing for me. Also, in, in King's pulpit in Atlanta, uh, uh, you know, the pulpit should change the world uh, and society, and those pulpits did. And to me, that's what it means to to uh, bring faith into politics. So, you know, I, I really think we're at this place of, of salt and light. Light is going to shine on things that need to be revealed, things that are wrong we should no longer accept, and salt preserves. So maybe our task 
And that's what the liberal left, the progressive like, they're like, fight. They want to shine on things and change things and reveal things. So, so I think you can change the world uh, by shining light on what's wrong, on what's wrong without destroying everything that's there. And you can preserve the world like salt without accepting things we should no longer accept. So maybe the salt and light, maybe that's the best of conservative, best of liberal progressive uh, philosophies. It's both. It's preserving and changing. So how do we learn that? And as, as you say, it's outside, inside sometimes, protest. It's civil disobedience sometimes. It's also talking to the president in the Oval Office. It's 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 listening and speaking, but being honest about what you think it means for you to be a follower of Jesus. You noted that you've preached in extraordinary pulpits, John Wesley's pulpit, <clears throat> Martin Luther King's pulpit. It seems to me that Donald Trump's principal pulpit is Twitter, and he's now governing through that pulpit. How has that shaped the political climate in the U.S.? I think Donald Trump has trumpetized American politics, not just on the right, but on the left, too. So how do we speak differently? How do we act differently? How do we treat those with whom we disagree differently? How do we disagree without demonizing? How do we discuss without attacking? How do we discern how to solve something without blaming our opponents for the problem entirely? How do we take responsibility? So I think Donald Trump is having a very, uh, uh, very dangerous impact on American political discourse and global discourse. There's no respect for the other. There's no calling your your opponents, making fun of them for how they look, making nicknames for them all. This is not something leaders should do. How do we bring people together? How do we listen and then lead and disagree with courage and even pay the price for disagreement, but not, not become... Um, those who accuse and slander and lie. And what he's doing is he's accusing, he's slandering and lying every single day. And that does impact the country and our kids and how they think we should behave. And it's a very dangerous situation, but also it's an opportunity if we see what's going wrong and decide how we can turn this thing around. Jim Wallace, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. You are a voice of reason and compassion and thoughtfulness in a world that is increasingly thoughtless and uninformed. You've encouraged us to engage the common good. You have declared that the gospel brings hope to a world divided. It has been a deep honour to speak with you today. Thank you for your time. And a blessing for me. I really do always love to come to Australia and talk to you all. And uh, it's a a blessing to, again, be in conversation with the people and nation that I love. If you've enjoyed How in God's Name Should I Vote, you might like to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Andrew Palmer. Thanks to our producers, Katrina Rowe and Liam Denny, and our online content manager, Andrew Morris. Production by Richard Hamwee.